Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. Welcome back everybody. What's up? Happy 5th of July. Have a good 4th? You know I did. Had about six burgers. Ooh, Play nice. with the sparkler. They still have those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dude, you, you know what's a big thing still? I, I didn't know, and maybe it didn't even go away, is slap bracelets. I think they came back. I would like to get one. Dude, they're, they're a lot of fun. That is a yeah. great toy. Mm-hmm. Dude, you know what else is fun? Is Legos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Legos are a freaking blast. I mean, that's got to be the best toy ever. I can't imagine. I mean, I know. What, what would you think is the best toy? No, that's if I really, I mean, other than video games, you know, for yeah, me, well, that's video my games. One, I mean, but, yeah. Okay. So Mario 3 yeah. is the best toy ever. <laughs> right. But, but no, yeah. When it comes to like toy toys, when I was a kid, I definitely Legos would be number one. Um, I liked Lincoln Logs. It was like a similar oh, yeah. deal. Lincoln Did you Logs have those? Great. Yeah. There's something about the way those fit together. I always thought was very satisfying. Yep. Uh, Satisfying's the kid. word. That's right. I never had um, like connects or an, or like an erector set, but I had like a knockoff, like dollar store version of an erector set. So it's just like these little sheet metal pieces that you could like you know put bolts into, um, and I really liked that uh, as a kid. And then I always wanted to do one of those things that was like an at home like toy kids, like magic set or chemistry set. Or I remember I got one once that was supposed to be like, you could make your own transistor radio. You had to like wind the wire around like a little tube and it was supposed to, but none of those things ever worked for me. Like I, I just, I think everyone was giving me like, like I said, like the dollar store versions <laughs> of those things. And it just like, they, they like, they left a part out or something and who's going to know. A, a chemistry set. So what would you do with the chemistry set? I I don't think I ever saw something think, like that. I think I remember one that was like, you, you know, you would mix stuff up and it would change colors or you could make like slime or something. Uh. I remember seeing that like in um, like toy catalogs when I was a kid. But uh, the stuff that I actually had that I liked the most. Oh, well, the other thing that I liked the most was definitely Transformers. Although that's the other thing. It's like I always had GoBots instead of Transformers, which like you couldn't write a funnier, like <laughs> generic cheap version of the toy name. These are GoBots. Go yeah. Oh, man. But I did like that stuff. I, uh, yeah. Well, hey, you know, that's stuff you uh, tell your therapist. <laughs> I'm not saying I was neglected, but uh, I'm just saying that. Yeah, I always like toys. Though I, I get that. I always like toys where you where you could do something with it. I never saw a chemistry mm-hmm. set. You know what I had that was kind of like a chemistry set is a geology set, and it came with all these different samples of different rocks, like they had talc and obsidian, mm-hmm. and they're real rocks. Mm-hmm. And you would like look at them. Man, I, I would play with that forever. Rocks are cool. Yeah, I liked them. Um, I, I liked that too. My my dad's had a friend who lived in the mountains of North Carolina, and I remember when I was a kid, and he would visit him. Sometimes he would come back with one of those little like rock sampler sheets, like from the like gift shop at the park or something, and it would have like a bunch of little yeah samples of a rock like glued to a sheet, you know, explaining what each one was or whatever. I liked that when I was a kid, and um, you know the other one that I just remembered when we were talking about this was uh, micro machines. I thought those were cool. Uh, could you, yeah, yeah, I remember Micro Machines, of course. I mean, dude, it was in Home Alone. He used the Micro Machines to... Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's one of the things Marv steps right. on when he's sneaking in through the yeah, window. Yeah, so Micro Machines, but you couldn't, uh, like, race them on a track, could you? 
No, you couldn't really race them on a track, but I had this thing that was, it was the shape of a Pennzoil oil can, but then you opened it up, kind of like a transformer. You opened it up and it turned into like a little auto, um, um, like an oil change uh, place where it had like a little elevator you could lift the car up on and stuff, like a little diorama or playset, whatever you would call it. That was cool. Yeah, building stuff is great. But honestly, more you know of a hot when I was a kid. Yeah. I I liked just uh, crayons too. I remember I did this thing when I was a kid, which is like this must say too. something. Oh yeah, spirograph. Yeah, I mean, yep, if there was ever evidence one. for you know young children looking for individuation, it's in the spirograph, man. Just like making mandala that's, symbols. So obvious. Yep. That was great. That's a good one. Yep, I like spirograph. It was always hard to get the ones that were weirdly shaped to actually like stay in the in the. Yeah, right. But like some of them look like footballs, but Mm -hmm. but they gave but they gave these really cool patterns. Yeah, man, that was so much fun. And sometimes only when you really got jamming on one, you would just like rip through the paper, like at the bottom, because you just kept going. Yeah, you're right. Though I remember there was like a rhythm to that with those difficult pieces. There was a rhythm to how you had to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I like to do was, I would just. Uh, take a bunch of different crayon colors and try to like just draw you know I just like draw like five different crayons on top of each other and try to make like a new color by just like overlaying you know these different crayons on top of each other and then that was like a game that like we would try to make up like my family and stuff would try to make up like goofy or gross names for the different like made up colors like you know something like puke or poop related you know for it's <laughs> for a kid's yeah. sense of humor that was fun <laughs> yeah kid and you know a little bit older. Well, dude, if you try to make your own colors, yeah, they probably just ended up looking brown. Yeah, they're all nasty, <laughs> which is, I guess, why all the poop jokes came <laughs> yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah, toys. Dude, and did, when uh, you were over when we were kids, did you ever play with that uh, game where you, a, a ball, like we'd build like a like a roller coaster and the ball would roll down the track and you can build loops and stuff? Oh, that vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, I think maybe. That was a great game, too. What was that called? Uh, Rollerball? I think it was just Rollerball. Okay. It's this old game. I don't know. Maybe you could find it online somewhere. But, yeah, yeah, you could make loops. And, and the track was like these plastic tubing. So you could, you know, do corkscrews and loops and double loops. And you'd have these huge hills. And, yeah. Yeah, those Hot Wheels, like those uh, launchers that they made for Hot Wheels where you you stepped on something and it launched the car. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I broke mine in the afternoon, I think, because you just, like, <laughs> jump on it. It's like, oh, that'll make it go faster. <laughs> right. That's one of the theories about how John Bonet might have been killed is that the, w- there's one – uh, one of the forensic pathologists has a theory that some marks that were found on her body match the, like, pegs that stick out of the side of a Hot Wheels track, like when you're connecting different pieces of Hot Wheels track together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, th- like, that forensic pathologist has a whole theory about how her older brother got mad at her and was, you know, beating her or something, and that's how she wound up dying. Not that the Hot Wheels track killed her, but just that it's, you know, that it's evidence that it, that he was the one who did it. Oh, what's up with her brother? Is he crazy? It's a it's an interesting thing. That whole John Bonet thing is really interesting. We could do a whole episode on it if you want to start just becoming a true kind oh, of yeah, podcast. I but I yeah, he's down here. Matt Orchard, right? Yeah, Matt Orchard's John Bonet video is fantastic. I'm sure yeah, I'll it's watch like, that it's, eventually. 
It's a very high quality documentary, and it's almost like a feature film. I gotta get through the JFK one first, but yeah, no, it's it's good. But yeah, one of the one of the theories about John Bonet is that her older brother is an autistic boy, um, and that they might have been arguing and you know whatever. And um, so he he went on Doctor Phil as an adult, and it was the only time that he ever went public to talk about the case. Uh, and he let Doctor Phil interview him. And they show some of that footage uh, in the Matt Orchard documentary. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a it's a very plausible theory that he might have done it, and then the the Ramses, the parents, might have discovered that, and then they're the ones who concocted the whole thing and made up the fake ransom or fake you know ransom note and all that stuff to try to you know cover up for their son. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying I believe that, but it's one theory that's out there. Well, it must be pretty high function if you could go on Dr. Phil and get interviewed, right? Yeah, he went to university. I think he went to Michigan, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, he's high functioning. He's just he's just weird. He's just a weird. Oh, so weird he's kid. just a software amongst engineer. Us. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. He probably did do software. <laughs> if I was if I was making a bet, that's what I would bet on. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, we had a uh, for the fourth. We went to the beach the other day, and it was kind of the first. It was kind of the first like sunny, warm day that was like truly sunny. We had so much of this, you know, June gloom and stuff. Um, so yeah, we went down to the beach. Um, Ellen got a really nice like tent that you can set up on the beach so that you can kind of like stay in the shade but still be sitting on the beach, and it's like half open, so you can choose to be like in the shade or in the sun. Um, it was awesome, but I. I sunburnt the shit out of myself. Like I'm just like miserable today. I'm so I'm like lobster red uh, on my back and my shoulders and my arms. It's ridiculous. Dude, did you not put sunscreen on? <laughs> of course I did. No, sunscreen I put it on doesn't my, even do anything. I put it on my face because I always like this is always my thing is that I always feel like as long as I have my face, like I'll be fine because I definitely do get burnt like on my nose, my ears, under my eyes, my forehead, you know, my hairline, all that stuff. And that was completely fine. But it was just all the entire rest of my body is just scorched. Dude, were you picking up a lot of chicks with your new bod? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think I can tell. I can tell it's been like, you know, what, eight months now. So it's adding up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, next time you come over, you got to work out with your shirt off. I mean, okay. we got to flex in front of the mirror and say stuff like it's getting closer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's like a map with little fingers all over it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's so pathetic to think back. I mean, not pathetic, but it's just in- indicative of the type of nerds that we were. Like when we were freshmen in college, like me and my roommate Carmine used to do just lines from Pumping Iron constantly. <laughs> we would say that stuff every day to each other. I wasn't even working out. <laughs> we were just saying it because we thought the movie was funny. Yeah. Well, dude, I mean, if you're going to get in a documentary. Yeah. Dude, you gotta watch yeah, the that new reminds Arnold me, I gotta, series. Did you get into that? I know yet? that's. I just got that. Just reminded me. I haven't started it yet, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about that on a show too because I definitely want to see it. You're finished with it already? I'm finished with it. I mean, it's not too. It's it, you know, most of it's kind of a tongue bath to be honest. I think he has a new book coming out called "Be Useful," and that's like the tagline of the do- documentary. So it's not like. I don't know. I mean, dude, I read this unauthorized biography of Arnold and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. So that they didn't talk about, but I don't know. Maybe it was wrong. So you mean like steroids and stuff? 
Well, and like, you know, like stuff was going on with his brother. Like, I think his brother was like psychotic or something. Like, there are a lot of issues with him. Mm. He ended up dying. And, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of problems. Was his brother in the States or did, did he come to America? Uh, no, his brother died when he was 25. So Arnold was probably 22 or something. Oh, and, wow. uh, yeah, I think he had an alcohol problem and he just got into a, a car crash and he died. Oh, okay. No, there's not like that, that much uh, unseemly stuff. I mean, dude, you know, you have to wonder. Okay, so he had sex with his uh, housekeeper, got her yeah. pregnant. How yep. many women did Arnold have sex with while he was married? Right? Like, it's just right. like that's the one he got caught with because he had a son. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten right. caught. Right? I mean, that's the only reason he got caught. I think that about everybody, you know, famous, you know, basically, because, you know, some some people obviously talk about it. I remember um, Andre 3000 from Outkast had, had a song where he talked about it. And um, and I just I've heard like, you know, athletes just talk about how it's sort of like, a, you know, unwritten rule or whatever you would call it, like a code of honor among the teammates that like, you know, of course, they're all married. But when, you know, they're out traveling as a team and going to strip clubs before the game and stuff like obviously stuff happens and nobody talks about it. So I think that about LeBron all the time. I just think like if you're LeBron, like, I mean, LeBron famously has had like a beautiful family, like a lovely wife, you know, kids who he adores for his entire, you know, professional career. And he's basically our age. Um, but you got to imagine being the most famous, admired, successful, and also handsome and charming you know, athlete in the world for whatever, a span of 20 years, who knows what the number is. And pretty much the same thing applies to Arnold. Yeah. Who would you rather have sex with Arnold or LeBron? Hmm. That's a close <laughs> one. I don't know. It's, it's a toss up. Yeah. I think I'd I be think, happy um, either way. Yeah. I, I think LeBron would be a little bit more gentle. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll go with that. Yeah. Plus I'm a Homer, you know, he's a Cleveland boy, <laughs> more or less. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe he had sex with lots of women. You know, but if you're LeBron's wife, you just got to be okay with that, right? I mean, you can't complain too much, right? I mean, you you had a really good deal there. I mean, you've been dating LeBron since he was in high school. I mean, you got to come on. I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? Is like, you know, do they talk about do do some athletes talk about this and have a, a out loud conscious understanding? Um, you know, and, and who talks about it and who doesn't. I mean, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I guess my ethics tells me that if they talked about it, then that's a lot more acceptable than if they didn't. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. Well, Steph Curry and his wife have an open relationship. Oh, do they? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I just get the sense, because I'm not a Steph Curry fan, I just think he's kind of a dork. I just get the mm -hmm. sense that his wife brought it up and he went along with it. That's the sense I get because <laughs> he, okay. he just didn't want her to leave or something. Uh, uh -huh. I, I'm, I'm guessing she has goes out with more men than he goes out with women. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm more of a Clay Thompson guy. Plus myself. you gotta, I mean, just some guys aren't into that stuff. I mean, as, as strange as it is, like they're just won't go to strip clubs. I don't know. I was going to say, mm -hmm. I get the sense that Michael Jordan was like that, but I think he was like that. Yeah. 
I don't know. I got bored with that Jordan documentary before I ever really got a definitive answer. Plus, that thing was so one-sided. I guess that, that wasn't going to be the right place that, that was to another time learn any. Yeah, that's the only thing I didn't like yeah. about this Arnold docuseries. It was, it was kind of like, oh, okay, you're promoting your book. I, I get it. Yeah. Man, that's what's great. That's what was great about that Kanye documentary. That Kanye documentary was so good. I, I got to revisit that. But one of the things that was so good about it was it was made by this person who was, you know, basically, I don't know if he would describe himself this way, but I would say kind of in a sense, like disappointed by Kanye. You know, he was a fan and he saw all the greatness in him, but the the nature of the footage that he got and the way that he put it together is is not just worshipful. It's almost more skeptical or whatever you would call it, you know, just kind of, it's not as one-sided. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely is a benefit to that. Like a documentary made about you by somebody who disagrees with you. Yeah. Right. Well, it goes both ways. I just want to know what your bias is. What's going on in the news? Is there any current event thing you want to talk about? Did we record? I guess we didn't record since like the whole uh, Wagner group, you know, threatening to overthrow Putin or whatever. Although that went away after like a day. So I guess it doesn't matter now. Yeah. I, it was a big deal for about 24 I hours. Didn't even see what was going on. I mean, I, I, I know about the story you're talking about, but I didn't get to know enough to, to see what happened. Yeah. No, I mean, there's nothing going on right now. It's like, you know, this Russia-Ukraine thing is just going to drag on indefinitely. I mean, I, I have no clue at this point. You know, I think the consensus is that, you know, Russia is not fighting the war very skillfully, but they have an overwhelming uh, advantage in just numbers and resources, you know, that they can just continue to plow into this. And um, I just think it's going to basically reach a point where, they just they just have to settle this and i think the sort of like scary possibility um i I heard an analyst talking about this a guy who's covered russia a lot i wish i could remember his name he was really good um uh, i heard him on the radio warner podcast which is really good i recommend people check that out if if they ever see a topic that looks interesting radio warner um but they were interviewing this guy and he was saying like look what's likely going to happen here is that at some point you know, they're going to have to just negotiate a peace. I don't know if that's in a year or five years or whatever. But when they do negotiate a peace based on the way things are going right now, it's pretty much definite that Ukraine is going to have to cede some territory. They're going to have to give something. Um, Or like, even if what they do is they just say like, okay, even if they don't cede anything, but uh, the Crimea remains effectively Russian, which it already was, you know, before this invasion started. Like, even that, it's like the domestic situation inside of Ukraine is like, you know, they have all of these right-wing militia dudes who are, you know, insanely nationalistic. Um, you know, that was Putin's original yeah, thing. It was like they wanted like to go... Nazis. Don't say right-wing. They're Nazis. They're... they're, they're, they're <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's... gave one of them a medal, right? That happened a few yeah, there, ago. Yeah, there's lots of these... Yeah, there's lots of these dudes who have swastika tattoos yeah, like, and, you know, self-identify as Nazis. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so that's like taboo to say, but I mean, the, 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 the evidence is out there. And uh, so this analyst was basically saying, like, look, if they wind up settling this thing, you know, keep in mind, first of all, 
you know, Zelensky is a Jew, you know, yes, yeah, yeah, first yes, of all. I thought that's what you are going to say. And, well, and there's that aspect, too. You know, there could be, like, intelligence, you know, connections going oh, on there or whatever. Be, maybe. But, yeah. Yeah. But but what you're going to get inside of Ukraine, if there's any sort of settlement that that is perceived as giving any sort of leeway to Russia at all, um, is you're going to get this right-wing backlash, this reactionary backlash. I mean, this country that was previously, you know, like, relatively, you know, peaceful, democratic, liberal, whatever, um, they could get like you know just just through regular democratic means i'm not saying like anything nefarious would happen just i think the political message that could win out could be like a right-wing reaction that just says like look you know one more jew betrayed us or one more liberal betrayed us uh and ukraine could go far right like uh you know hungary or farther to the right than that I mean, who knows what and um I guess I guess the the long and short of it is that that's not good for people in Ukraine, uh, generally speaking. Um, I would imagine. I don't yeah, know. I can't believe your analysis of this isn't just uh, the the American military industrial complex wants this war to continue as long as it wants it to continue, and that's all that's going to happen. Oh well, no, you're right. I mean, I'm thank you for saying that. But I mean, that's CIA what it is. This is about runs Ukraine at this point. And this is about arms sales. I mean, that's what this is. This is. This yeah. is about getting money, like right. flowing money in the direction towards arms manufacturers. God, that's what World um, War One was about, <laughs> and it, and it right. hasn't changed since. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it didn't start off being about arms sales. Russia really did invade Ukraine. That really happened, oh, and nobody I'm on sure. the left, of course, you know, no, nobody on the left thought that that was going to happen. It, and it did happen. That's that's very weird that that happened. I guess you can chalk that up to Putin. I'm listening to an audio book that's a biography of Putin right now, by the way. And uh, um, it's extremely huge and dense, and I don't have anything to say about it now uh, other than that I'm I'm trying to get through it. But, um, yeah, I, I believe that the Putin invading Ukraine was a genuine move that they decided to do. Now, I don't think it was unprovoked. I think it was because, as we've said before on the Brazen Heads, Russia is a country that has interests just like America is like they're not robots or you know what I mean like when when NATO they're was asking when for it. right when when NATO is is warming up to Ukraine of course their interests are going to kick in um, and it's only natural that something like that could happen is it wise like I don't know I don't think so. But I mean, we shouldn't act like the only way that uh, the only reason why anybody would do something invade Ukraine uh, is because they're pure evil. Like that's the same fucking stupid mindset that we had about Iraq and Vietnam and everything else. It's like, no, that's not why. There's reasons. People do things for reasons because they have interests and uh, there's like stakes. Yeah, but that's and, not you know, that's not our narrative about World War Two. The yeah, narrative about exactly. that is Hitler was evil, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could question at the time, but now it's that's you know what we are up against, and all you have to do is associate Putin with Hitler, and there you go. Yeah, no, totally. Well and said. And if you, I mean, that's you know, exactly deny the happening. importance of you know standing up for Ukraine, if you don't have Ukraine flag flying on your house, then you're Neville Chamberlain. Right, right. You're doing yeah. You're doing appeasement. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with you. So it looked like for 24 hours there that this Wagner group, I don't know how you pronounce it. I mean, it's Russian, so I'm not going to say like Wagner, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, but the, you know they they the, the, they turned around and started marching their troops towards Moscow, and then you know the the um, what, what's his name Pre, Prej, Prejnikov Prejnikov, 
I wish I could I remember. Know, the leader of the Wagner group basically like negotiated a deal, basically saying like, look, you know, you're going to let us escape to Belarus. You're not going to hold us accountable for this. This was a demonstration of the fact that the the fighting men who are leading this war effort on Russia's behalf are actually opposed to the way that it's been managed by the generals, uh, you know, underneath Putin. And and that's it. I mean, what is the outcome of this? I don't know. I think nothing. I think more slog, more stalemate. That's it. Dude, you got to read that Dostoevsky biography if you want to read one of a Russian. That is cool. Yeah. You know, I'm doing a Dostoevsky just, year this year, and I'm just reading all his books. Yeah, that's awesome. Just finished so Notes cool. from the Underground. I mean, I've read it before, but... Sweet. I don't even know what you say about that stuff. I mean, it's just some of it is so good and insightful. Just... How did, how did you uh, pick your translations? Uh, I am told, and you know, I, I guess I don't really know for sure, but I'm told, I mean, generally the, the expert opinion, at least, at least with Dostoevsky, is the Richard Prevere and uh, Lara Volokonsky. They're like okay. a husband and wife team, and they do all the best translations, I guess. I don't know. Um, okay. I... You, you know, I, I actually read a different translation, though, because I already read that translation for, uh, oh, wait, no. Oh, yeah, so I already read that translation for, um, that was the first time I read Brothers Karamazov. I read the, I could just call it the PNV translation. But, but, mm-hmm. So this year, when I read it recently, I read the uh, Constance Garnett, I think. It was like the first one in English. Yeah. I yeah. read that one, and honestly, dude, I just couldn't tell the difference. Okay. Is that wrong? <laughs> I just couldn't tell the difference. So, well, um, if I remember correctly, uh, DFW touches on this in his review of uh, Joseph Frank's Dostoevsky biography. Well, yeah, that, that's I, the I one remember, I'm talking about. Yeah, he he discusses the those are the two leading translations in English. And he he has a little blurb in there, if I'm remembering correctly, where he compares and contrasts uh, some excerpts of those two and shows that they're, you know, different, but both good, you know, in their own way. And he doesn't have a really firm conclusion, um, but he basically winds up just saying, like, you know, it sucks that we have to read, read these in translation, basically. Like, God, you know, wouldn't you love to be able to read that in the original um, even more so than like reading Hugo in French. I mean, French is like whatever. Um, you can trans transliterate, you know, French into English, and you're not really losing a lot. Sorry, French speakers, but I mean, Russian is a whole different game. I mean, I I just gotta think that you know something is getting changed in the process when you're reading Russian in translation. Yeah, maybe. Dude, you know what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to learn Russian just so I could read Dostoevsky in Russian. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. So I just don't I even I would think like about to it. learn a language. I would definitely like to learn a language. I've been thinking about that because, you know, I want to do a lot of travel in my life and all that stuff. I guess Russian is probably not likely to be the one, although I definitely do want to go to Russia, though. That's that's on the list. I mean, now is not the time to do it, but hopefully in you know 10 years I can do it. Yeah, dude, you got to see some churches. Yeah, go I just, to, uh, where did Dostoevsky go to, um, Omsk? That's where he went to his prison camp in Siberia. You got to go check that out. Oh, I'm cool. sure there's a Dostoevsky yeah, my, museum somewhere. 
I'm sure there is. Yeah. 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 The, the Ukrainian dude who I'm friends with, his wife is actually from Siberia. Like her family lives in Siberia right now. So, uh, that's, I can't imagine that. That's wild. That's, that's truly the middle of nowhere. You think, you know, Nebraska is the middle of nowhere, but <laughs> that's really something. Dude, I always, I have Yakutsk on my weather app just to see what's going on there. <laughs> I love Yakutsk weather, man. It's, it's great. That and I, yeah. uh, and Mokroy, dude, yeah, you got to go to Mokroy because that's where uh, Dmitry Karamazov gets arrested. There's probably like some, you know, some emblem or, you know, a plaque. A plaque oh, somewhere. Cool. I, there's got to be, right? I mean, it's I like guess. the best scene in the. Well, is it the best scene? I don't know. I got to read that again. But yeah, I mean, does I don't remember. I mean, it's just crazy how insightful he is. And I, I mean, I, I, I make this joke, but like as a therapist reading Dostoevsky, it really feels like you're just doing research. It really feels like work because of all of his psychological insights. They just go into your brain. I mean, it's like magic, dude. It's really like magic. Have you are are you going through them chronologically? No, not chronologically. I'm just kind of bouncing around. I'm pretty much done. I'm I'm going to read um the adolescent next. That's like one yeah, of his minor major one. ones, and then I'm going to read poor folk, and then I think I'll never be done. Read that. I've only read Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, and The Gambler. Which I remember. <laughs> Gambler's great. Yeah, yeah dude. Uh, he had some gambling issues in real life, and it's kind of awesome. Well, that's how I originally got into Dostoevsky. I mean, this is the classic, speaking of autism, the classic, like, just nerd means is that in Slacker, the Richard Linklater film, you know, top five film of all time for me, maybe number two, probably number two behind Mulholland Drive, um, there's just a very brief scene in a coffee shop. Uh, where a guy mentions, yeah, yeah, Dostoevsky's The Gambler. And I was just, you know, whatever, 13-year-old kid, and that just stuck with me. I was like, well, that sounds cool. That sounds like a cool reference. Let me go check that thing out, you know? So I read it in, like, ninth grade and had no idea, you know, when I was reading. Yeah, The gamb- the Gambler and the, the Double, those are, well, I actually read those at the same time because they're both part of the same book. Cause they're, they're many books. They're maybe, like, each 100 pages. So they just sell them together. Mm-hmm. And both of those books, I think the theme is just nobody knows what to do with mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's mental illness. Like in each of these stories, there's a guy who's seriously experiencing mental illness, and that's bad. But the even worse part is just the way that people react to him and how they treat him. It just makes it 10 times worse. And it's like, well, yeah, we haven't mm-hmm. really gotten too much better, but. Yeah, but that was what stuck out to me about those. Hmm. No, but they're great books, both of them. I mean, yeah, they're they're easy to get through. I mean, it's not like, well, I mean, Dostoevsky's not difficult. I think it's uh, it's very readable. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think Brothers so Karamazov is, whew, man, yeah, yeah, dude. There's like some paragraphs in Karamazov you think. Like, I don't know how he does it, but he just summed up everything about human psychology in this paragraph. And he didn't leave out any details. He somehow <laughs> kept all the important details. I don't know. It's just amazing sometimes. Have you reread that DFW uh, Joseph Frank essay recently? Well, I never read that in the first place. 
I mean, I know uh, you and our buddy Matt were talking about it, but yeah, you should read that for yeah, sure. Read Especially, that. yeah, as part of your. I mean, you can knock it out in you know one evening. Of course, it's just one of his like you know essays. Um, Dude, speaking of yeah, DFW, you should, you should everybody's got to check out my video this week. I did a hero's journey breakdown of Infinite Jest. Oh, cool. Okay, with Don Gately as the hero. Nice. Super. Yeah, we were talking about that uh, the other day. Yeah, like it's so interesting how Infinite Jest, you can carve it up in so many different ways. And yeah, you can definitely see Gately as the hero. I, I, I of course, related I, but to I Hal the most. I don't think you could but... see Hal as the hero. I know we were kind of going back and forth about that when you were over, but I don't think mm-hmm. Hal is a hero. I think he's an anti hero. He's mm-hmm. a sacrificial lamb. I don't. I... Well, remember Hal, I mean, in, in typical meta fashion, remember Hal writes an essay about the concept of hero versus anti-hero as part of his like coursework yeah. at ETA. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, of course DFW was himself, you know, thinking about this and addressing it, you know, metatextually, yeah. which part of why I love that book so much. He's, you know, cause he writes about the hero of inaction, right. uh, which of course is what he literally becomes, you know, he becomes essentially comatose, you know, so he is, the hero of inaction. Yeah, yeah but there's which, he, he does stuff before that though. It's not that simple. I mean, he. I think the big thing is is he. Um, I, I mean, he recognizes his drug use and he knows he wants to do something about it. He confesses to Mario. Yep. yep. He goes to a AA meeting, but he winds up in the, uh, you know, that like baby therapy <laughs> group instead. Yeah, the total '90s guy. Like, let's give each other hugs, and we just need to express our. Our hurt child, yeah. Dude, if, if that's right. your first meeting or your first group therapy, you're not going back. <laughs> right. You are a casualty right. of the mental health system at that point. <laughs> and I, I think that's what happened to Hal. And I don't know. I, I, I just get the sense that maybe DFW related more with Hal than with Gately. Yes. Yeah. Well, he was a tennis player. He had, you know, complicated yeah. relationship with his, you know, overachieving parents um, he had addiction issues. Yeah, yeah, so, wasn't I mean, his yeah, dad there's a philosophy professor. Uh, so I, I could imagine sure. their dynamic being a lot like Hal and James's dynamic. I know that his mom was like an English pro- uh, professor or teacher who had like a famous grammar book. So that's very Avril Incandenza ish. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, she's not a, a good character. Okay, guess who's not the hero yeah, of the guess book? Not, <laughs> you can rule that, that one out. That babe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much fun thinking about it because I was, you know, writing down these uh, plot points and man, it's just so much fun to think about that book. I, I, I got to read it again. I, it's, yeah. But I think I should probably read it. Maybe, I don't know. I, I'm going to finish yeah. Dostoevsky in the next few months and then think about it. I think the last time I read it was in 2015, maybe, maybe 2016. It's been a while, and uh, I would love to read it again also. Me and Ellen made it, like, we made it through the first, like, I would say, like, 600 pages or so. We got up to, like, the pivotal, you know, scene where, you know, Gailey gets shot. Spoiler alert. Um, uh, But we didn't finish it off, and that was, God, I don't know. That was probably four years ago. But um, was that it, when it we never were reading it together, or we both said we were going to read it, and I guess I just finished yeah, before you did. It's like I was going to, and then yeah, like you ripped through it, and I was yeah, I got I I was going slow. I'm a slow reader, but yeah, that's it would be great to go through it again. It's just well, just like you said, I just love thinking about that book. I mean, it's the only book uh, 
literally the only one for me, and I know this is different for you, where as soon as I was done, I really just wanted to start it all over again. I think that happened with you with The Man Who Laughs, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. Dude, I got The Man Who Laughs on Audible. There's an Audible... Uh, with, with the, it's the hap good translation. So it's not bad. I don't think it's bad. Mm-hmm. And dude, I'm just reading. I mean, they had the preliminary chapters in there, so it must be not, you know, not too bad. Nice. I do, I'm, I'm just making my way through the preliminary chapters and I'm honest to God, dude, I am laughing out loud by myself, just laughing at how freaking good the book is. It's just <laughs> so good. <laughs> the way that he's characterizing Homo and Ursus and. Oh my God! Yeah, his characterization of Ursus—it is—it is hilarious how good it is. I, I just don't know how else to even conceptualize it. Just makes you laugh. How I love it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just slowly—you know—just when I have time or if I'm falling asleep, I'll listen to that. Nice. Yeah, I've been falling asleep to audiobooks lately. It's yeah, it's a good way nice. to fall asleep. That or uh, Tarkovsky, dude. <laughs> Yeah, that'll do it, too. All right. Well, we have arguably the best episode of Twin Peaks uh, to talk about today. So you ready to get into it? Yeah. Uh, So this is the season um, premiere. Ah, never mind. This is, uh, you know, like if if you're like me, you're a David Lynch head, and you're trying to look on the bright side. You're trying to like, you know, man, I wish there was more David Lynch stuff. You can really just take this episode, the first episode of season two, which is a double length episode. You can just think about it as if it's a feature length David Lynch movie. Yeah. Because that's what it is, right? It's directed by that's David totally Lynch. It's what an it hour is. and a half long. I mean, and it's got everything. Is it his best movie? No. But I mean, it's really good. And it does a great job of just... I don't know, getting the ball rolling again, you know, as, you know, season one, we talked about sort of the silly things that wind up season one and, you know, Catherine being, uh, rescuing, uh, Shelly tied up in the burning mill and Pete going in to save her. There's a lot of like, you know, weird kind of silly stuff happening. Not that it's bad, but, um, I think Lynch just sets the tone so perfectly in this episode, he really brings it back down to what it's supposed to be. There's funny stuff in there, but it's also tragic. There's a moment where Andy cries thinking about Laura. Um, and there's scary shit in here, you know, especially at the end of the episode. And, uh, it's just fantastic. This might be as good as twin peaks ever got until you get to season three. I mean, now I'll, I will still say that season three is, it blows all of the stuff out of the water. I'm such a season three fanatic, but, um, but yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I I'm, I'm with you. I don't. I'm just looking through my notes here, just trying to. Yeah, remember everything. I mean, yeah. So the the first part of the episode. I mean, so Cooper just got shot, and he's lying mm-hmm. in his hotel room. This should be studied. Like this should be something that you study, like in film school or whatever. Because this first sequence with just the guy delivering the milk, the room service, uh, and then the giant, is just so expertly done like you just you couldn't craft this any better and you timed it right didn't you say like it lasts for however yeah many it's eight minutes <laughs> it's so it's eight wild minutes before the giant shows up so i think the <laughs> intro is a minute and a half so it's just six and a half minutes of this old guy going back and forth from the room saying stuff like i heard about you <laughs> giving him the thumbs up yep here's your milk yep. 
And then he wants him to the sign phone. for the room service. I hung it up for you. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> just totally oblivious. It's so good. And it, it has that Lynch thing where it's just like, you know, something is kind of like happening without it really being like said. You know, like he says, like, would you call a doctor? You know, and the, and the old man, the room service guy who's bringing him his warm milk, he doesn't really register that, you know. And so then Coop asks again, like, you know, the phone, did you call the doctor? And he's just like, I hung it up for you. Right. Like, what? It's <laughs> like the phone. I hung it up. And Cooper's like, just like, okay. Like, you know, like it's just, it's, it's so good. It's like you want it to be, you know, on any sort of normal plane of existence. It would be like, oh, God, you're shot. Let me go get help right away. You know, or Cooper would be like, what the hell are you doing making me sign this thing? Call a doctor. But, you know, Lynch doesn't work that way. And uh, it just, yeah, it, it's, there's something very, satisfying is not the right word but there's something very like expert about the way this sequence is is done you're just like oh boy here we go the big guy is back in control of the show yep yeah yeah and then the uh the giant shows up yeah so is this the first moment i i know i just watched all the episodes up until this point but is this the first moment where you think something begin to understand that something supernatural or not of this world is happening. Yeah, I would say yes. Well, I a little bit later on in the episode, very slightly later on, Coop realizes that his ring really is gone, which like that's how this thing ends. The giant says, give me your ring. Yeah. You know, I'll give it back to you when you've seen these things to be true. So the fact that his ring really is gone is it's got to be your first real moment of understanding that something yeah, something else is at play. You could have speculated on that, obviously, prior, and people like the log lady or whoever would, would, would lead you to think that, but now it's getting very concrete. I mean, the other thing that makes it pretty concrete is Leland's hair. And that, that doesn't just happen, right? You know, but that happened. Well, it happens in Les Miserables, so I didn't really think anything of it. Yeah. It also happens in that Crash Test Dummies song. So uh, this is like an interesting... Um, <laughs> what you know, trope or yeah, <laughs> you know you remember the Crash Test Dummy song, you know, mm-hmm, when we were oh, kids. Yeah, well, like the, I, that, that was on the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, so of course I remember that. Yeah, one of the verses is about a kid who's uh, a kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school, and then when he came back, his hair had turned into bright white. Hmm. Can't believe you don't remember that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> Uh, but yeah so the giant um, says a man in a smiling bag yep the owls are not quite what they seem and without chemicals he points i just gotta right. let everybody know that i was taking notes here yep that's right and so we get the man in the smiling bag in this episode we don't really get the owls are not what they seem and we don't get without chemicals he points just yet we'll get that soon yeah Okay, so that's the intro sequence, and yeah, like I said, if you just want one little like self-contained little thing to study, it's it's the intro to this episode. But the next thing that we go back to, oh, there, there, actually, there's a little bit more. The other thing that he says is Leo is locked inside a hungry horse. There's a clue at Leo's house, uh, and we'll learn more about the hungry horse thing later on in this episode as well. But then we go to um, where we left off, which I actually forgot about this. I forgot that it was paced out this way. When we concluded uh, season one, 
We were at the moment where Ben was about to go in to see the new girl at One-Eyed Jack's. Um, well, Ben, so ben does go in and, uh, you know, Audrey realizes it. Right. And then she runs away and yeah, puts ex- the mask on before he can see her. Right. So now we get sort of the conclusion of that scene, which is that, yeah, Ben's trying to, like, come on to her. She's holding up the mask so he doesn't know that it's Audrey. And then, you know, b- before, you know, the before things get you know too serious jerry knocks on the door and says that there's a situation uh, that ben has to come attend to and by the way we never really find out what that is although there is the scene where jerry is talking to blackie and she's like high as a kite and he's like yelling at her and he says like who's holding out on who yeah and we really don't know what any of that is about and it doesn't matter <laughs> but th- there's some drama at one eye jacks there yeah, well, I, I think it matters in the sense like you, you just you know are really realize yeah, realizing that Ben and Jerry aren't good, right? Yeah, and then later on they're going to meet up with Hank, and we're going to kind of get their whole scheme here, you know, with Catherine and you know Hank and Leo and everything. Yeah. Um, okay, so Coop was wearing a bulletproof vest, um, but he had lifted up his vest to uh, track down a tick that he had on him. Um, so one of the three shots uh, actually did hit him, uh, but he's okay. He's going to be okay. And when they have him in the hospital, um, they have an interesting little shot where the tick is actually embedded into the bullet uh, that that uh, the doc pulls out of him. Uh, so that's like a cute, quirky Twin Peaks thing. And uh, in there, uh, when, when Coop is like uh, laying on the floor right before they come get him, He's talking to his uh, voice recorder. He's talking to Diane. And uh, he talks about how painful it was to get shot and so on. And his goals for life and, you know, what he wishes. And he's just, like, contemplating life and death and stuff. And he says that uh, the experience of getting shot is not that bad, quote, as long as you can keep the fear from your mind. Uh, Although I guess you can say that about a lot of things in life. It's not so bad as long as you can keep the fear from your mind. Um, it's interesting. Not only is that a very Lynchian, you know, sort of sentiment, but it's also almost literally from Dune, uh, which, you know, Kyle MacLachlan starred in and David Lynch directed, um, which, you know, Dune has the whole thing of fear is the mind killer. You know, I must not fear. Um, same, same deal. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure a lot of movies have that theme to be fair. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a cool... I think it's a cool idea. I think Frank Herbert deserves some credit for, you know, articulating that in Dune. And I bet that that's one of those things where, like, Lynch already, you know, held that value himself as part of his, like, meditation practice and stuff. You know, mental discipline and, you know, yeah, fear is a mind killer. It sounds very amenable to TM and stuff. But it's just, it's just interesting to think that, like, I don't know if you know this story already. This is, like, one of those factoids that that people like to throw around lynch turned down the opportunity to direct return of the jedi they offered it to him and he turned it down Uh, and then he went on to direct dune i think the next year um and i wonder if you know the part of the reason why lynch made that choice was because he wanted to direct you know a story that had something more like that kind of a lesson in it you know whereas return of the jedi i'm not saying anything bad about star wars you know the original star wars but i think it's maybe not as just didn't really tickle his his value system in the same way. Like he just wasn't quite as tuned into well, isn't it. Isn't that as what Yoda says? Doom. I mean, maybe not in Return of the Jedi, but Empire Strikes Back. Something about how fear leads to anger, anger leads to the dark side. 
Yeah, yeah. Yoda says, you know, fear leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Something like that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Is that in is that an empire? That that must be an empire because it's when Luke is training. It must be, right? Yeah, I, I think have to imagine. I think I it's think funny. that line is actually uh in the prequels. I think that's the thing about that. Oh. Yeah, that's in that's in um shit. Let's see here. I think that's in uh episode one. Yeah, there's a lot of really bad philosophy in those. Anyway, yeah. It's like the light side and the dark side. Yeah. So dumb. But but that that is I mean, there's a lot of Buddhism in that too, so and that, that's what George Lucas is. I think he's a born Methodist, became a Buddhist. And I think a lot of that mm-hmm. philosophy is in uh, is in those episodes. Dude, mind-body dichotomy, no time for that. Am I right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's that's a conversation for another <laughs> day. I would like, like to hear anyway, more back, about that. Back to Cooper. <laughs> Dude, you know what I like yeah, about I, this scene is... Um, <laughs> It's like there's that sound effect in Star Trek where if there's like a cheesy joke or something, like when all the tribbles fall on Kirk, they have that sound effect like, it's not quite like a sad trombone, but almost. Mm -hmm. They play that same exact sound effect when Lucy gives a rundown of everything that happened the night before. Yeah. And Cooper goes, how long have I been out? Yeah. Dude, it's 745 in the morning. It's like, yeah, there's so some I real wonder, comedy. Is that Lynch's decision to do? <laughs> I think it is, and I think that's something that he would not do in a film, but he does it here uh, inside the the confines of Twin Peaks. So I guess that goes against what I was saying earlier about this being like you know just think about this like another Lynch film because it does yeah it does take some stylistic cues that I think are really you only get away with in TV. Like what if there was like a womp womp in Mulholland drive? You would just be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like the, uh, joke equivalent of the Wilhelm scream. Right. It's like the sound effect that just gets used over and over. Wilhelm crying, whatever. Okay. So the next thing that we see is, uh, Maddie is hanging out, uh, at the Palmer's house and she had a dream last night about something on the carpet. She's looking, she's kind of fixated, almost hypnotized by this, uh, one area of the carpet in the, in the sitting room there. And, um, she talks to Sarah about it for a second and then she has a vision of like a blood stain uh, on that carpet. Uh, so that's a little scary moment. You're going to die, bitch. Yeah, right. Spoiler alert. And then Leland comes out right afterwards, you know, related to that. Um, and yeah, his hair has turned stark white uh, and he's he's psyched. He's happy. He's singing the Marzy Dotes and Dozy Dotes song, um, which is a real earworm. And get that stuck in your head. Yeah. Um, and then he goes. So, that's yeah. when he goes and sees. Uh, well, maybe it doesn't happen next, but he goes and sees Ben and Jerry and they're. Yeah, that's coming up soon. Annoyed, right. But they're totally into it. Exactly. Yeah. So then we see uh, Ben and Jerry, they're game planning, you know, what are they going to do now after the fire happened at the mill? You know, they want to make sure that, you know, Catherine is going to be the one who's implicated in the whole thing. They want to know what's going on with Leo uh, and like, what the hell? Like Hank was supposed to kill him, but he's not dead, you know. Um, And then Leland comes in still doing his singing and dancing routine. And it's that's a that's a total Lynch shot right there where 
Ben gets on his desk and starts tap dancing and uh, Jerry is doing this like crazy, almost like does the worm on the floor, you know, like dives he's, down. He's break and, dancing almost, yeah. yeah. It's a cool move. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really cool shot. It's a very, it's just one of those things where, yeah, nobody else would ever do that. Um, so it's, it's a nice little moment. Um, okay, then the cops are investigating Leo's house. Uh, remember that uh, the giant said there's a clue at Leo's house. Um, and while they're investigating, um, Albert shows up. The FBI shows back up. Um, and Andy, uh, in his like frantic rush to go, you know, tell Sheriff Truman that, that Albert is here, he steps on a loose board and, and sideshow bobs himself. <laughs> That's what I put in my notes. He sideshow bobbed himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, the board flies up and hit, hits him in the face. Another Lynchian moment. The specific way that Andy is like dancing around after he gets hit in the head and is like not really responding to them when they're trying to ask him how he's doing. It, it just has this little detached, unreal aspect to it that I think is kind of Lynchian. He's sort of like smiling and doing sort of like a squat, like duck walk type yeah, thing. Yeah, his it's, reaction takes more coordination than anything right. else. Right. It's it's not normal. It's it's oh. it's Lynch intentionally had him do that just to I don't know, evoke something. So I think that's kind of cool. And the the plank that he stepped on that that went up and hit him in the face uh wound up to be like a purposefully loose hank uh plank that was hiding Leo's stash of cocaine and also a new pair of shoes, a new pair of boots. Um which by the way that itself comes into play cuz Leo says, you know, that Leo needs a new pair of shoes uh, when he's threatening Bobby. Uh, I think is that in Firewalk with me, or was that earlier in season one? I can't remember. Dude, I don't forget. At some point, Leo did say that, so it kind of all comes back around. Um. Okay. Um. Should we move on? Anything on that? Mm, nope. That's it. Yeah, I love Albert. We'll we'll talk about him more later. Um. Okay, so next we go to the double R. Weird intro shot where there's just a random patron at the double R who yells, hot damn, that pie is good. Right. It's like a weird, I don't know. I just Well, I, I think that I, means that Hank had sex with Norma. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Do you think that's true at this point? Uh, I don't know. He was laying on the charm pretty well. And mm-hmm. I mean, Norma, you know, she's a woman. She has needs. I, I don't know. Yeah, she's married to Hank. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, I could picture that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it must uh, be that. That's Okay. That's what I would assume. Well, um, Donna and Maddie are meeting up with each other uh, at the double R to just sort of like, you know, remember the last time that we saw them, they were pulling this whole scheme on Dr. Jacoby where they let him out of his office. Maddie dressed up like Laura. James raided the office and found the heart necklace and the tape. Uh, and then Dr. Kobe got beat up by somebody, we don't know who, uh, and then like had a heart attack afterwards or something. But it wasn't their fault, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're talking about that. And then the other thing is that um, Maddie got a pair of Laura's sunglasses. And this is an awesome like little Lynchian thing where whoever is wearing Laura's sunglasses is just like acting like a badass. 
Like first, first, like, it's like uh, snakes Maddie, hair in that one Trials of Horror episode. It's, it's literally like snakes hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Maddie has them on at first, and she's acting really weird. She's <laughs> acting like very like cool and like whatever. But then she takes them off and gives them to Donna, and then Donna just is like doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, she walks into the police station later, and then Lucy just drops her jaw and turns and goes, "Don't." It's like. She doesn't say it, yeah. but Donna, is that you? <laughs> right, exactly. It's like when um, uh, once your face comes back at the end of Greece, Sandy. <laughs> right, tell yeah, me all about made it, up, stud. Yeah. It's like one of those <laughs> yeah. things. Um, dude, dude, the thing about this though that I wrote down is is how wholesome this entire scene comes across. I don't mm-hmm. know, dude. There's just something wholesome about high schoolers at a diner drinking milkshake and smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Right. That, that's what high schoolers really should be doing, like yep. playing and stuff. I, I love it. I, I just, I don't know. It just fills me with uh, a lot of, oh, these kids, they're going to be okay. That, that's what I'm thinking. Yep. Twin Peaks really makes you want to smoke. Just like Deadwood really makes you want whiskey. <laughs> I drank so much whiskey when I watched Deadwood for the first time because like, you can't watch the show and not want to drink whiskey because it's all they do. And Twin Peaks definitely Sipping makes you want to smoke. Glass. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you know what makes me yeah. want to smoke is being awake. That makes <laughs> right. Dude, I love smoking. <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. Um, but this is okay, the so same were... time when Don and Maddie meet. Oh, no, it is. Okay, never mind. Well, then Norma comes up to Donna and hands her this note. Somebody left a note for Donna. We don't know who, but they left it for Donna at the double R. And it says, look into the meals on wheels. So later right. on, you know, uh, Donna is going to take over Laura's job uh, or volunteer job uh, delivering meals to, you know, disabled people through the double R's meals on wheels program. Um, OK, the other thing that happens there is that the log lady is at a nearby table and she spits out her gum and and. Yeah, and uh, presses it onto the wall. By the way, we skipped over the log lady intro. It's a long log lady intro for this episode. It's pretty explicit. It's not very like mysterious or evocative or anything. Um, but one of the things she talks about is she gives her little I chew pitch gum speech, which if you've watched the Twin Perfect video, um, he he clips that as part of his his whole thing. So um, what's the but, meaning behind that? I don't know. I just think it's related to, you know, the woods. The log lady has this connection to the woods. The woods are also mentioned in the poem, which uh, Donna's younger sister reads later on in the episode. And uh, I don't know. You know, there's just there's a darkness out in that woods, like the bookhouse boys say. Yeah. Okay. So she spits out her gum. It hits the wall and then she puts it back and sticks it to the wall. But then she takes a new piece of gum out and puts it in her mouth. Yeah, she just starts up a new it's one. It's like she's yeah. cycling through something, or it's like the same thing, but like a different, th- I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess I can do the Log Lady intro real quick if you want. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit wordy, but she says, Hello again, can you see through a wall? Can you see through human skin? X-rays see through solid or so-called solid objects. There are things in life that exist, and yet our eyes cannot see them. Have you ever seen something startling that others cannot see? That, like, evokes Maddie's vision. Why are some things kept from our vision? Is life a puzzle? I am filled with questions. Sometimes my questions are answered. 
In my heart, I can tell if the answer is correct. I am my own judge. In a dream, are all the characters really you? Different aspects of you? Do answers come in dreams? One more thing. I grew up in the woods. I understand many things because of the woods. Trees standing together, growing alongside one another, providing so much. I chew pitch gum. On the outside, let's say of a ponderosa pine, sometimes pitch oozes out. Runny pitch is no good to chew. Hard brittle pitch is no good. But in between, there exists a firm, slightly crusted pitch with such a flavor. This is the pitch I chew. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. The thing, uh, the thing about these Log Lady intros is that they were done afterwards anyway. So right. it's like, I don't know how much to put into them, but I think it's kind of nice that they're sort of thematic and whatever. But I don't know. Um, okay, let's keep it rolling. We'll get through this. Um, we find out from Andy, because apparently off screen, or you know, we didn't see this, apparently uh, Coop asked Andy to look into the whole hungry horse thing, which the giant had mentioned. And Andy found out that on the night that Teresa Banks was killed two years ago, Leo was actually in jail on an unrelated offense in a town called Hungry Horse in Montana. So this is important. This is like, you know, if you're really trying to, if you're seeing this for the first time and you don't really know what the actual plot is and you're trying to solve the mystery, now we know that the first victim of this killer could not have been killed by Leo. Uh, so that's that's very important. Which pretty much rules Leo out because we know that they're the yeah. same guy. So Right, right. And then later on, or, or just in a minute here, James is also going to tell us and sort of reassure us that he doesn't think it's Leo either. Um so the, the one-armed man shows up at the sheriff's well, dude, station. The best part about that scene is when Andy can't find the the, the note or the piece of paper with that key information on it. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there, like, you know, patting his pockets, like, where did I put that? Right, while well, Albert looks Albert's on. Albert's there, yeah. rolling his eyes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Albert is great in this. I love that actor. I love that character. Yeah, yeah did, he, did, he died, did like, right the line, after season uh, Gordon three. Cole ordered me back here? Yep. Like. Yep, and. And it has real weight too, right? Like Cooper's a little bit skeptical. Like, wh- why do you guys need to come back here again? You know, but yeah, the, the yeah, but Albert kind of lays the law down and says, "Look, the point is, Albert Cole or, or uh, Gordon Cole ordered me back here." Well, I, I thought it was, I mean, it, it was meta in that Gordon Cole as the director. Yes. Okay. That's right. Right. All right. Yeah, David Lynch is We're David Lynch page. is putting me back into the show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, that that's that's really awesome. That's that's the only time really well, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think about that stuff, you know, like the the meta-ness of of movies and stuff. Like Lynch the the only movie Lynch ever made that is really about movie making, it's not really Mulholland Drive even though that takes place in Hollywood and there is like a director in it. Um, I I don't think that the the director Adam in Mulholland Drive is a stand-in for Lynch. In Inland Empire, there is a director played by Jeremy Irons, and that is definitely, like, the whole plot of Inland Empire is about how the movie that they're making is intersecting and interacting with the actual reality uh, that the actors live in. Um, But even then, I don't really think, like, Lynch is a stand-in there. Like, I don't think he's representing himself. Um, in fact, if we ever go do like an Inland Empire episode, that would be fun to do someday, by the way, if you ever have three hours and you want to watch Inland Empire, we could talk about it, but it's, it's a, it's not that good. It's, it's a really, you never watched it, right? Uh, no, I mean, 
Uh, yeah. It's it's a slog. I mean, it's it's. Dude, it's I mean, really, if you're saying it's a slog, I, I really don't want to watch it. It's really dark. It's really just. It's a bummer to watch it. I mean, it's good, I guess. It's kind of sucks in a way. I don't know. It's it's on the lower tier, um, but it's really weird. It's it's maybe his weirdest movie. Anyway, um, but but Gordon Cole is the one character where it really is like Lynch is actually putting himself in a sort of like meta nodding way into his own work. And so, yeah, I think when Albert says Gordon Cole ordered me back here, um, that's cute. That's clever. You can read that on multiple levels. And, and uh, yeah, I just love Albert. Um, so, yeah, the one-armed man shows up at the sheriff station. He says he's there to meet Sheriff Truman. He's there to sell him shoes. He sort of wanders off. It's sort of spooky. Lucy's a little bit freaked out by him. And that's it. We don't get any more of that in this episode. That'll become relevant later. Okay, now then we have My James. longest note here is about that scene. Okay. I think it's really important, so I'm just going to read it word for word. Yeah. Uh, the scene begins before Mike even opens the door, not as he walks through it, which gives it a soap opera quality. But he only has one arm, so maybe it's for that reason. It's because from Lucy's per- perspective, she she would have noticed him try to open the door because it would have been awkward and created some kind of ruckus. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, think about that one. That's good, man. You're on one. These are, those are the kind of notes I would have made like if I was high when I was watching this. That's that's a hell of a thought. <laughs> no, dude. No, it's. Uh... Well, I mean, it is weird, right? Because it, it, there is that kind of soap opera quality to it in the beginning. Like, why mm-hmm. is he coming through the door like that? Mm-hmm. But then you think, oh, it's from Lucy's perspective. Maybe that's why. And what does that mean? I, I don't know what that means. Those, those are just some observations I had. Well, it's very interesting because that is a theme that we know that Lynch likes. He likes that perspective of somebody walking through the front door of the sheriff's station from Lucy's perspective. Cause you remember in season three, there's that whole thing about how like Lucy doesn't understand how cell phones work. And there's that like extended scene, like right near the right. beginning of season three where the new sheriff Truman, Robert Forrester walks in on the cell phone and she like freaks out. And there's also another one later on in season three where uh, Chad, the bad cop is trying to intercept the letter that's going to show up at the sheriff's station. And so he has to, like, hang around by the front door, like, mm-hmm. in front of Lucy and, like, go intercept the mailman before he makes his way through the front door. So we know that Lynch likes that stuff. And I think that's true. I think Lucy's perspective at that front desk is like a is like a vantage that he, that Lynch has a real interest in. So that's a good note, dude. That's good. <laughs> wow, Diz. You contributed something here. You are really. Yeah, you are supplementing this thing with some <laughs> stuff that is. It's like the next layer deeper behind just talking about what happened. That's that's excellent. Oh, yeah. So James has been held at the sheriff's station because of the whole, you know, Bobby called in the tip anonymously saying that uh, he's an easy writer, you know, and they found cocaine in his gas tank. Now, James is a bookhouse boy. I don't think Sheriff Truman has any, you know, suspicions about James, but they did bring him in. And uh, so... Um, he has the other half of the heart necklace. You know, he gives it back to Coop and uh, he talks to Truman and he says, and they, they play the tape, you know, the Laura tape that they get from Jacoby's office. And um, 
James says that one night Laura started talking about fire. Do you want to play with fire, little boy? Uh, do you want to play with Bob? And uh, so I think that might be the first mention of Bob. Maybe. Maybe they read it in Laura's diary once before. Can't remember. Um, I, well, I mean, we've seen Bob, but. We've seen him. Yeah, but I mean, just yet. like they, they, I don't think yeah, they hearing that name. Bob. I guess I think the one armed man said Bob, like in the dream sequence. I think he talked about Bob. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, but anyway. Um, but anyway, the, the point of this is that James is basically telling Sheriff Truman, like, look, I think this goes beyond, like, Jacques Renault. And even though Leo has a red Corvette, I mean, this stuff that Laura is talking about is, is not Leo. This is something deeper and worse. Um, then Donna shows up at the sheriff's office um, wearing the sunglasses, you know, in her cool mode, like we were talking about before. They also play a cat call. Yeah, yeah. there's a whistle effect. off screen. <laughs> yeah, when Donna walks in. <laughs> what? Like... That did not happen. That's, 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 yeah, meta. it's like, I just get the sense. I mean, I, I like it. It's fun, but I just get the sense that Lynch is trying to combine sleaze and sophistication. Like, this is mm-hmm. a sophisticated story, but he's just throwing in sleaze and stupid sound effects. Right. Well, that's kind of related to the other sort of gag, if you will, that happens um, shortly afterwards, which is this running joke they have about the food at the hospital. There's like three or four different things where people say like, oh, that food will kill you. Or like Pete sniffs the food at the hospital because Pete has smoke inhalation, you know, and he does this great like physical comedy where like the smelling the food almost kills him. Classic Pete. Yeah. And uh, they even play like a weird like cauldron bubbling like ooze sound effect when they're showing the trays of food at the hospital. So... That's that high and low thing. Well, according to Twin Perfect, doesn't that represent some kind of easily consumable television viewing experience? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and they're all repulsed by it because they're they're trying to do something that's that's better than that. I mean, I can I can buy into that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they interview Doctor Jacoby. You know, who's at the hospital. Um, and he, he says that you know he was the one, like in the pilot episode at the very end, where we see a hand that goes and retrieves the necklace that, that James and Donna bury after their famous, you know, sultry scene together. Um, and that was actually Dr. Kobe. He had followed them and he was the one who dug that back up um, because, you know, he needed it. It was Laura and, and Laura was herself uh, emblematized or, or crystallized by that broken heart symbol. That was who she was. And, and Jacoby believes that maybe she allowed herself to be killed. Sort of a tragic thought. Yeah, then the and dissolve to Laura's face as he says that, Laura's dead face. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then he notes the, yeah, burnt motor oil smell. Right. right, and then he remembers that, yeah, the night when he was under heavy sedation yeah, in the hospital Jacques last night, when Jacques Renault was killed by Leland, um, Jacoby remembers that he smelled scorched engine oil, which is a famous theme from Fire Walk With Me. Um Bobby goes to visit Shelly at the hospital. Um, Shelly says, I love you. And Bobby says, I guess I love you too. He's just kind of like dumbfounded. I think that's a great, that's, that's, that's great acting there. I mean, Bobby is just, he doesn't know what to do with that. He's a kid, you know, but he also, he, he does love her, you know, in, in as best he can. Uh, and I like the way that they play that. Yeah. But what's with her look at the end? Before yeah. The when he says ends. it back to her, yeah, when he says it back to her, 
she's not like fairy tale princess, like, you know, storybook, you know, whatever. She kind of has almost, almost, uh, what would you call it? Nonplussed, or I don't know what it is. Well, like, you know how Shelly like, is, right? And maybe she just yeah. loses attraction for Bobby when he says that because it's like, oh, yeah. th- this guy loves me. What a pussy. Yeah, or or just that, like whatever he's giving back to her was just like you know was not the the dream of what she was putting into it when she said I love you to him. Oh man, I, I think that's, that's a yeah, that's that's a nice like subtle moment there. Um. I like when the cops are walking through the hallway of the hospital. It's basically like an extended sequence where we check in on everybody at the hospital. We're going to check in on Big Ed in a second here. But they're walking through and they see Bobby leaving Shelly's room. And Sheriff Truman says, Bobby Briggs, hmm, he doesn't look sick. <laughs> What's he doing in the hospital? And Albert says, Sheriff Truman, to see this kind of investigative genius at work, it's just a real treat for me. <laughs> it's like so, so pissy, so sarcastic. I love that. Yeah, I've never met anybody that sarcastic. <laughs> Not even a smidgen of me that sarcastic. <laughs> that's a Dude, great, I bet when I was 15, I was getting close to being that sarcastic. <laughs> that's about it. I hope I wasn't, although I'm sure I have some embarrassing moments back there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Ed tells his whole story. You know, Ed is there. You know, Nadine's in a coma from her suicide attempt. And uh, Ed is there, you know, at her bedside. And he sort of just, you know, pours his heart out to Coop telling the whole story about how, you know, they were, him and Norma were high school sweethearts for four years. There was one, you know, piddling little weekend where Norma ran off with Hank. Um, and, you know, Ed didn't know what to do and was confused and hurt and whatever. And so he kind of, just picked up Nadine because she had always liked him and they ran off and had a whirlwind wedding and honeymoon and it wasn't very well advised. And he even shot her eye out on that honeymoon. That's why Nadine has an eye patch (laughs) is because it's part of their honeymoon. They went shooting pheasant and Ed accidentally hit her and she didn't even complain. She was so in love with him and so kind that even as they were taking her to the doctor, she didn't, you know, she didn't have any complaint. And uh, just Ed is really down bad. Well, I don't know what you expected. I mean, she was your rebound chick, and you committed yeah. your life to her. I like. What do you think is going to happen? And then, uh, oh, you know what happens next that I love? Okay, so that's kind of the extended hospital sequence. I love obviously the scene with Major Briggs and Bobby at the double R. That's super melodramatic, you know, whatever. But I just love Don Davis, the actor who plays Major Briggs. I just think he's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, they have this little scene where he 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 happens to run into Bobby at the double R. They did not plan to meet there. They just both happened to be there. And he confides in Bobby that he had a vision last night as distinct from a dream, which is just the mind sorting out the day's events. But this was a true vision uh, of... Uh, a palatial, you know, uh, palazzo where, you know, he was, he was residing and then he, there's a knock on the door and his son is there and it's Bobby and he's happy. And it, it filled major Briggs with uh, optimism and a confidence in Bobby's future. And Bobby tears up and they have a hearty handshake and it's just a great moment, uh, especially, you know, considering pretty soon here, you know, we're going to have major Briggs is going to be gone and, and Bobby's future is going to be, you know, uncertain. You know, so it's just it's just an awesome little moment. Isn't it strange though, Derek, that 
okay, so the, uh, the major, you know, he, he sees his son and he invites him over, but he doesn't bring up the vision right away. Yeah. Right? He's just sitting there eating his huckleberry pie. And Bobby needs to, like, instigate some kind of conversation. And then Major Briggs tells him about the vision. Mm-hmm. That's a little weird, right? Yeah. Just something I picked up on. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they first, they, they do the cliche stuff first. You know, he asked him how school was. How was school? How was fine? How was work? How was work? Well, it was fine. What do you do? Well, it's confidential. You know, that's just, that's, it's kind of like setting the groundwork for like, this is what their relation would typically be. But like now there's another layer to yeah. it. And you know what else okay. is interesting is in his vision, he's really describing exactly what he's doing in the conversation as he's doing it. Mm-hmm. He is, uh... Yeah, that that's that kind of feels like what's going on. It's, yeah, it's like he's making the vision real by telling it to Bobby in that moment. Mm. Okay, those are my notes. Oh, the oh the other note there that I had about Albert is you you can tell they want Albert um that they want the audience to like Albert because he's funny. Mm-hmm. Like they actually make him funny, which makes him likable. Is that is that too obvious to mention? I don't know. Have we already had? It sucks that I can't remember this stuff. Have Have we already had the little speech where Albert talks about like how he takes his inspiration from Gandhi and King, and he is like a warrior for nonviolence and all that stuff? Did that happen already in the show, or is that no. later? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I I think we're gonna find out if that has not happened yet. Then later on, you know, there's obviously more depth to Albert than that. Uh, you don't get on the Blue Rose Task Force just by being funny, you know, um, and good at your job. There, he's a he's a spiritual warrior in his own way, just like Cooper is. Um, but yeah, for now, he's he's playing this thing for laughs throughout this entire hospital sequence. Like when Big Ed is pouring his heart out, I mean, Albert is like riffing. It's like MST. Like Albert is, you know, ga- gagging along with this thing. All right. Okay, let's race to the ending here because we're almost done. This is a long episode, and uh, there's kind of two more important things that happen here. Um, one is that um, the, the, is the situation with Josie, right? So we find out from Pete, uh, Sheriff Truman brings Pete home from the hospital. He was in there for smoke inhalation. Uh, Josie has left a note saying she's gone to Seattle, and Pete says, oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. She goes on shopping sprees, whatever. And then Asian guy uh, at the uh, Great Northern calls uh, Asian asking mafia for guy. Clearly, yeah, yeah. He, he's a, he's an evil looking but, Asian. But dude. They That's, just got they, they just yeah. got some guy some extra from uh, Rush Hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to play this part, yeah, yeah. Cast me an Asian gangster, please. <laughs> right. Ponytail, slicked back hair, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of like one thing. There's a couple little like, you know, bits and bobs. Like we find out that, uh, you know, Audrey is still at one eyed Jack's right. Blackie's kind of like threatening her and Audrey is sort of there like praying for Cooper to come save her. You know, I left you a note. Didn't you find my note? Blah, blah, blah. And we see that the note, which Cooper had originally picked up right before he got shot, I believe. Um, but now that note is like stuck under the bed and he's forgotten about it. And the giant says you forgot something, um, but doesn't tell him what. So, you know, that that note is going to come into play in a minute here um, later on. 
Because at some point we got to go rescue, you know, rescue her. Um, the other thing, um, the, the other major thing to me is I love this scene at Donna's house, at the Hayward's house, where they're having like a little dinner party with uh, Sarah and Leland Palmer. Mm-hmm. And the daughters are playing music and reading a poem uh, about Laura. Um, I just think it's great. I don't know. I just think it's a great scene. You know, that it's uh, it's uh, poignant. The poem that Harriet writes is really good. Um, it's a, it's you know Lynch wrote that. That's good stuff. And um, and then Leland, you know, says that he sort of turned a corner. You know, he woke up. His hair was white. And he feels like some sort of weight was lifted. And, you know, the pain of loss is still there, but it's not weighing on him the same way that it was before. And he feels like singing a song. And he sings, get happy. Um, But the really weird thing about that is that, so he starts singing, get happy. And then he sort of does like his freak out. Like we've seen him do in the past. You know, he sort of like freaks out like when he was dancing, you know, before and had kind of a meltdown freak out. I just got to say here, if you really pay attention, I think... You know, like I was doing. Maybe you weren't, but if you really pay attention, <laughs> please. He's he's actually getting a little bit more crazy throughout the entire scene, mm-hmm. and then it culminates really quickly at the end. But he's be- getting progressively more and more crazy. Yeah, like, no, it, totally. It doesn't just start at the end like that. Yeah, no, he's he's building up ahead of steam yeah. for sure. And um, the thing that's really weird about it to me is that he he when he passes out well singing get happy um and then when they kind of like wake him back up they give him smelling salts and stuff and he yells begin the begin and that's just like such a it really just sticks with me it's like damn why'd you say that you know so begin the begin was a you know popular song in the 30s right it was written by cole porter you know famous you know tin pan alley songwriter or whatever and uh it became a big swing hit uh, later on in the 30s because Artie Shaw did like a swing version of it. Um, but yeah, the Begin is a the name of a dance that originates in, uh, I think it's Indonesia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It, the Begin was a dance that was discovered in Fiji when uh, American ocean liners first started doing like Pacific cruises to Indonesia and the Pacific Isles and stuff. Um, I don't really know what to make of that. You know, I just think like, you know, get happy, begin the begin, the Marzi Dotes song. And uh, what else? The Transylvania 65000, you know, the swing song that he was dancing to before. Mm-hmm. This is just like a thing with Leland. You know, he just has this lexicon of you know, 30s, you know, pop music. It's, it's very weird. Maybe John Schwarzwalder was on the staff at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I think whenever I was, there's an old-timey reference in The Simpsons, like, oh, Schwarzwalder was on the staff for this. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, is, does the begin, like, mean something? Like, like does it mean something I don't know. to say? Yeah, begin, I mean, begin? I wrote I that down. I didn't get much further than that. Yeah, I don't really, yeah. I don't think it has, like, a metaphorical meaning. I just think it's... There's something evocative about the fact that he sort of yells that right there. Um, okay, we basically covered everything. Then the Why last the thing that happens. Why does daughter dress like a princess? Um, didn't she say that she just got cast in the school play and that was like her outfit for the play? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, that was explained. Then Audrey prays for Cooper. 
Yeah, Audrey prays for Cooper. And then the last thing that we get, uh, after the giant tells him that you're forgetting something, um, the giant also tells him there's one person who saw the third man. I guess I wasn't very concrete about this before, but like, you know, we wrap up this episode by Albert and Coop sort of explaining what their theory is. And they basically say, like, look, at this point, we're pretty much convinced from the evidence and from what people are telling us that there's a third man. This was not about Leo. This was not about Jacques. What happened that night is that, you know, first Laura met up with James. Then uh, then Laura ditched James and met up with Leo and Jacques, which was a prearranged thing. They went up to the cabin with Ronette. And previously, we might have thought that that's where she was killed. But really what happened is that Leo and Jacques got into a fight. Leo hit Jacques with a whiskey bottle. Uh, so Jacques passed out. Then Leo marched away on his own uh, and drove off. And then after that, there was a third man uh, who attacked Ronette and Laura. Um, and so the giant tells Coop that there's one person uh, who saw the third man. And just in case you couldn't figure it out, in case you were wondering, like, well, wait, who's the one person who saw the third man? Finally, the episode concludes with Ronette back in the hospital, uh, sort of having a vision and maybe starting to come out of her coma. And she has a very dark, unsettling uh, vision where we see a sort of flash, like sort of strobe light recreation of uh, somebody attacking uh, her and Laura. And we see Bob. We see uh, a glimpse of Bob there at the end. Yeah. I mean, so she's basically, you know, they're inside the train car. There's that pile of dirt. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, they basically tell you... There's also, the, the, sorry, by the way, there's also like a devilish, like satanic, evil-looking uh, face that Laura is making. Oh, uh, in oh dude, some is of that there? Footage. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Because I which is really, yeah, which is like really scary. And it, and it kind of relates back to that thing that Jacoby said of like, like, you know, maybe she allowed herself to be killed or like, there's something darker happening here. She's not just like a victim. She herself has some sort of, you know, dark energy. Yeah, but they they essentially just tell you who the killer is, right? I mean, they tell you it's Bob. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't know exactly who Bob is, but... Yeah. I kind of tell you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at this point, you're watching this thing fresh, you don't know anything. Now you know for sure that Bob, the guy who was you know friends with the one-armed man or whatever, uh, is indeed the killer. And now the question is just, like, what does that really mean? You know, what are we going to do from here? And, uh, yeah, that's what we'll get to next. Yeah, man. Great episode. May the giant be with you. Great stuff. That's maybe the best episode before you get to season three. Although I also think that, if I remember correctly, I think it's episode 14. The one where we really, you know, solve the whole thing. Uh, I remember that being fantastic as well. And that's also directed oh, by... Oh, dude, Lee. that's episode seven. Episode seven of season two. Yeah, it, it wraps up yeah. very quickly, and then there's there a lot go. of Windemarill going on. Yeah, yeah, and then and then we're gonna we might start going on fast forward there, folks. I'm gonna watch these episodes at one point five x. Okay. <laughs> well, dude, you got a co-host here. You got to slow down for him. Yeah, I mean, if you're making good observations like Lucy's perspective, sitting at the desk of the sheriff station with a one-armed man opening the door then uh, I'm psyched. I'm ready for more of that. Yeah, thanks. I kind of feel like that was my one good observation this whole time. <laughs> Trying uh, to get, get a complex about that. No, you're doing good. Uh, everybody well, thanks, let us Derek. Know I appreciate think. that. <laughs> Just happy everybody to be on the us, team. 
Let us know what you think. Thebrazenheadspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. All right, buddy. All, all right. Talk, talk to with you. Soon. Yep. Late. <laughs>